Drones will become a central part of our lives. Drones are delivering packages, surveying cell phone towers, providing Wi-Fi, or fertilizing crops. Drones are assisting humans in dangerous work and serving as an entirely new computing platform, providing services that were previously non-existent. Airware is a company that is building a full-stack drone platform. In this episode, Buddy Machini takes us through the software architecture of a drone. Airware's drones have two operating systems, one for the real-time flight-critical aspects and one for application developers who want to build their own software for drones. I hope you enjoy this episode, Drones with Buddy Machini. Buddy Machini is the CTO of Airware. Buddy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's start off with a simple question. What is a drone? What is a drone? So a drone is a uh, an autonomous aerial vehicle. At least that's how we describe it. Um, and the thing that makes drones so useful is that you can put sensors um, on that platform uh, to collect data from perspectives that are otherwise very hard to get to, either with someone on the ground or with a manned aircraft. And you work at Airware. What are the goals of Airware? Um, at Airware, we're making a commercial drone platform. So uh, previous to uh, the sort of widespread uh, proliferation of smaller drones, um, there were military drones. Um, there were, you know, very large drones. And and what we've seen is that the technology has reduced in size and commoditized. Um, and what that's enabled is for drones to be used for uh, civil and commercial purposes. Uh, however, um, they are very complex systems. Uh, there's lots of things to... Uh, to sort of worry about, uh, not only technically, uh, but also for things like compliance, regulatory, stuff like that. And so at Airware, we're making a a full stack uh, product for companies, in particular uh, enterprises, to use drones for everyday business. Okay, so what are some of those customer use cases for drones? Yeah, so um, one that I can talk about um, that's that I think is pretty cool is um, with State Farm. So what we're doing with them is we want to put a drone in the hands of all of their property claims inspectors. And so right now, if you have roof damage, um, a claims adjuster will come to your house. They'll climb on the roof, take some measurements, um, identify some damage, um, and then you know uh, hopefully write you a check for uh, for the damage to your property. Uh, what we're doing is um, sort of giving them this extra tool, um, this drone, that can uh, much more uh, quickly, easily, safely inspect the entire property, uh, collect the you know similar data to, to what they would collect by climbing on the roof, um, and, and basically collect more data than that as well. So uh, photos of the, the sort of entire property that can not only be used for damage inspection, but also things like underwriting, risk assessment, things like that. Okay. So now that people have an idea for what the use cases are, what are the hardware requirements for a drone? Yeah. So there there are a few hardware requirements. So uh, the basic components to a drone um, are the the physical airframe, and that will typically um, obviously include motors and propellers. Um, Those are the things that uh, generate thrust. Uh, But also the motors need motor controllers. Um, These are typically power electronics. Those all talk to an onboard computer. um, And that can either be uh, an actual, you know, sort of Linux style computer or a microcontroller. Um, And that's also interfacing with sensors. Um, So there's several sensors on a drone. Uh, There are accelerometers, there are rate gyros, magnetometers. 
the drone typically has a GPS receiver um, so that it knows where it is in three-dimensional space. Um, and so it uses all those things um, to generate an estimate of uh, its state, where it is in the world, um, and then produce commands that then go back to the motors and control the vehicle in space. Okay. And so Airware is building some of these hardware components. Uh, other ones are more ones that Airware integrates with. What is the hardware that Airware is building? Yeah. So um, at Airware, we, we build um, both first-party avionics uh, hardware, um, but also uh, integrate with third parties, as you said. So um, the avionics basically consist of the sort of things that I just described, which is the um, the electronics that sort of form the brains of the drone, the autopilot, uh, the sensors, um, all the software that fuses the sensors and does the flight control. Um, and so the, the the core of the Airware hardware platform um, is essentially an autopilot that can be integrated into vehicles. Okay, so let's start to talk about the software. Um, and I think one place to start is what's the general interaction between the drone itself and the cloud service behind the drone um, before we delve into the you know, specific components of each of those uh, aspects of the drone application? Just give me an idea of like the kind of the communication pattern between the drone and the cloud service. Sure. So um, in the cloud, the the process starts out in sort of the planning phase, uh, and so there you know there will be a, a request for data um, essentially from from either a customer or a service provider, um, and then the cloud uh, can either you know either in an automated way or a sort of semi manual way do things like create flight plans, create geofences that sort of constrain where the drone can go. Um, run all of those through uh, compliance checks for things like airspace, um, and then you know assign that sort of whole package to an operator. And so, the the data that comes from the cloud to the drone um, includes everything from an autonomous flight plan, um, which is sort of a you know fully fully mapped out 3D flight plan for the drone. Um, it comes with operational constraints like geofences or you know maximum operating altitude, uh, things like that. And it also can come with configurations for things like cameras and uh, and sensors that the drone needs to collect the data as it's flying autonomously. So, um, so, so we call that a flight package. Uh, it's everything that the drone is going to need to operate completely autonomously, and that's that's what comes down from the cloud to uh, the drone. And I should say, there's sort of an intermediate step where there's an operator user interface um, that can either. Uh, run on a mobile device or a tablet computer um, that essentially takes that from the cloud and then interacts directly with the drone itself. How would you say the the interaction between the drone and the cloud servers, how does that compare to the client-server interaction that we're more familiar with like between a phone and the server? Yeah, and um, so in, in many ways it's similar, um, but I'd say... One of the things that's interesting about drone operations is that the, the when the drone takes off, it needs to have everything, uh, all of the information that it needs to actually complete the flight. Uh, because one of the things you've you know on your cell phone, you know you've experienced a dropped call, or you know you're um, in some conditions you may lose data connection, and so the, the drone actually needs to know how to operate entirely autonomously, so that in the case that the link between the operator or in you know by proxy the cloud. Uh, to the drone is broken, um, either temporarily or for the duration of the flight, the drone needs to actually know what to do. So 
So I'd say that's one of the sort of fundamental differences um, between how, you know, say a smartphone might interact um, through a cellular network to the cloud with the drone is that the drone needs to effectively download all the information it needs beforehand and it needs to be able to operate entirely on its own. Hmm. So let's start to talk about some of the software that you use. What are the programming languages that you use on a drone? Yeah, they're, so they're um, it's sort of full stack. So you know, from the bottom um, on the embedded processor, uh, we're you know running a real time operating system that's typically implemented in C or C plus um, plus, and that's so. That, and and for any you know for anything real time um, that's running on an embedded system, that's that's pretty much the standard. Um, you know, because of the predictability, um, speed, performance, um, type safety, you know, memory safety, things like that. Um, so for everything embedded, um, typically C, C++ is the standard. Um, as you move up a, up in the stack to the operator interface, um, we've used, you know, everything from uh, C Sharp, um, you know, Windows WPF. Uh, yeah, Python is very commonly used for a lot of the sort of data processing aspects on uh, on the ground station computer um, and then and then also uh, you know Java Android things like that uh, but on the drone itself it's uh, pretty pretty squarely uh, C and C++ for the actual uh, microprocessor that's doing the real-time uh, state estimation and control um, a lot of times there's also a uh, application computer on the drone as well and you know, just typically, that's a Linux computer where you can then run you know any any host of languages that are running non safety or non flight critical uh, operations for things like managing sensors and dealing with data in the air. Right, and we'll get into that uh, the idea of those two operating systems that you have with the application framework side by side with this closed real time operating system. Um, before we get to that, there's. The heart of the communication in this drone system is this PubSub RPC middleware component. Can you explain how this communication layer works? Sure, and, and there's actually you know a few different layers. Um, there's uh, there's sort of the the safety critical embedded layer, um, and this is where threads are talking to each other on the real time operating system. And there's also uh, it's, a, it's a modular avionics system, so there are also components that are networked over CAN, uh, controller area network. And so there, there's sort of a low-level PubSubRPC layer that is running, um, you know, where we need to guarantee delivery for things. Um, you know, we need to have some very strong notions of what the latency is going to be um, for some of these real-time control threads. Um, so that And that's low-level, and, you know, there's... There are actually shockingly few libraries available for doing low-level pubs of RPC, um, and so a lot of that is kind of custom that we developed here at Airware. Um, from from the drone to the sort of outside world, um, there are lots of good frameworks um, that you know that can be used for that that come off the shelf. Um, one good one is uh, called Robot Operating System, uh, which is uh, primarily um, has clients in C and in Java, um, and you know typical pubs of RPC. Um, and then, you know, there are, there are some other more web-centric frameworks like um, web application messaging protocol or zero MQ. Um, so once the, once the data is sort of off the drone, um, you know, there's, it's really up to you to pick sort of the framework um, that makes the most sense. And there are a few that do. But on the drone itself, um, we're running a fairly custom middleware layer so that we can make guarantees about performance and safety. And just to clarify, so this, this PubSub middleware layer, this is just for communication within the hardware on the drone itself. It's not for communication between the drone and the cloud. Is that right? 
Yeah, on the embedded side. And so those are for things, you know, the, the GPS module is physically separate from the actual autopilot. So the GPS module has its own embedded processor, as does the autopilot. It needs to send the data that it's getting from the GPS chipset to the autopilot so that it can process it. Um, and so the, the PubSub RPC framework basically enables you to uh, create topics. Um, so in the case of GPS, there might be a GPS data topic. Um, there might be a GPS status topic. And then within the topic, there's a structured message um, that has the fields that you would expect. And those messages are sent atomically, um, either thread to thread locally, um, or also, as I mentioned, over a CAN network, um, where a lot of times it needs to be broken down into smaller packets, um, sent over the wire, and then reconstructed on the other end. But it's a, it's a it's a framework that allows threads to talk to each other so that if I switch out the GPS module that we currently have with another one, um, the new one will just talk over that same topic and I won't have to rewrite all the software that talks to the GPS. So this super low latency pub sub system, you know, there, I think we've done a number of shows about pub sub systems built in Erlang or perhaps built in Java but I think what you said was that there really is not anything super low latency built in C or C++ uh, out there that you can just take off the shelf, right? It's um, There are a few packages, but to you know, in terms of the memory size that they'll compile down to, the amount of RAM that they'll require, uh, we, at least we found very few um, that were that were going to operate, you know, at a, at a very low level with very tight constraints in memory and RAM. Um, okay. And, and so, but there, there are some, I mean, you, you know, you can, there are plenty of these packages in C and C++ that you can try to compile down, but then, you know, when you put it on a processor that, you know, has memory that's in the kilobytes um, uh, and, you know, RAM that is also, you know, either in the kilobytes or low megabytes, it becomes very difficult to sort of guarantee the performance of those libraries. Right. So if you're if, if you're in a factory or if you're in a uh, Wall Street trading company, you can have some super low latency C++ pub sub system that has totally different constraints than that of a drone. Yeah, and that's, that's correct. And, and so, so it sounds like your domain is extremely unique. Um, although it's kind of surprising that there hasn't been like uh, that that requirement from a mobile operating system, like I, I guess, do, do do mobile operating systems do? Are there any that have pubs that have a requirement for pub sub systems? Well, even even mobile operating systems these days are are in a higher class of computation um, than the types of processors that we're using, and and kind of the, the reason for that is that the the timing for a lot of these things um, needs to be extremely precise, and it needs to be guaranteed. Um, where you know if you move up in a you know you can use a more powerful processor that typically comes along um, with sort of. Um, a larger abstraction between the machine layer and, and user space, um, which, you know, you, you do have more computation, but it, it's sort of, it's more difficult to get those guarantees in timing hmm. um, with, you know, with something like a real-time Linux kernel. Um, so, so the, you know, I'd say even in mobile, the, the you know, the processing is probably uh, more plentiful than on the very small embedded processors that are typical, um, typically used in drones. 
Um, and even like in drones, even the the TCP/IP stack is something that you ca- you have to optimize um, in terms of taking things out of it so that it will fit into uh, the memory and you know and runtime complexity constraints. So things that we you know we really take for granted at sort of the you know even the mobile layer. Um, you know you, you you assume that the the TCP/IP stack is fully implemented. That's even something that you need to import as a library and oftentimes optimize um, to to make it run efficiently. Now we've had a couple shows recently about uh, about unikernels, which are these library operating systems where you really pick and choose the things that you're going to have in your uh, in your operating system based specifically on the requirements of the application. Have you looked at unikernels at all? I, I have not, and I'm not familiar with them. But oh, okay, it, so- it sounds very like very very similar to what we actually do. So. Um, you know, for for instance, um, you know, we we typically don't need USB device drivers um, for most of the embedded processors, and so that while that's something that you can compile in um, as a library, we typically will you know we'll leave that out. Um, we'll only bring in the drivers that we need, things like the CAN drivers, the most basic uh, TCP/IP stack drivers, um, flash drivers for memory. Um, so. So we kind of do, uh, I, th- I think we kind of do what you're describing, maybe in a, in a slightly more manual way, but it's certainly something uh, that it sounds like is worth looking well, at. Well, it's funny because you, the the USB example is the canonical example that the Unikernel guests gave where they said, okay, if you're spinning up a Linux server in the cloud, you don't need a USB driver because even if you wanted to, you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't put anything in the USB port. Right. Yep. You know, unless and, you want to... Yeah, and there's tons of examples. Like, I mean, we never need a display port or a display driver, for instance, on, you know, obviously on, a, on a, an autopilot for on a drone. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, for the application computer even, um, you know, we're... We are, you know, using we're using tools that will basically compile, you know, a, a minimum viable kernel um, that, you know, that also, you know, fits into constraints, you know, into the smallest Docker container that we can that we can fit. But, you know, there there are certainly optimizations that we've made, and it's, I'm glad to hear that, you know, there are some tools that are starting to be uh, developed that maybe automate that process a bit. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned this application framework. We should get into that. So this application framework is to understand it, you need to understand that there's two operating systems on the drone, and the two operating systems communicate with one another. You have this closed, real-time operating system that handles the flight-critical aspects, and then you have this more open side of the application framework that is running some version of Linux with some various middleware. Uh, is that an accurate description? Yeah, that, and that, that's correct, and, and we do that primarily for safety. So you know, on the on the closed side, we need to guarantee that the drone um, will will not only operate safely, but it will also operate predictably, despite you know anything that the um, that the users or the developers in that system do. Um, and then in between those two layers um, is a is a very well thought out sort of firewall, so to speak, um, where there is a there is an interface between these two these two you know sort of um, domains. Uh, but it's it's very stringent um, and is you know very predictable. And then once you impl- once you have that sort of safe side of the system and a and a robust firewall between the two, you can then let users kind of do whatever they want um, for the most part on on the application side. So it's interesting because as I was researching for this show and I was looking at this model you have for these two kind of two operating systems in order to support the user. Uh, custom built applications 
they would want to run. You know, it sounds like this is the this is a problem that is well, I shouldn't say a problem. It's a challenge that is going to have to be. You know, people are going to have to develop more and more design patterns around it because as we get to self driving cars and uh, you know, obviously there's cryptocurrency stuff where you're people are building applications on top of these frameworks or on top of these application systems where it's not like you're just building on a social network or some Twitter thing and and you can really do whatever you want and have free reign. It's like you're really dealing with high sensitivity um, platforms. So is when you were building this the system of two operating systems where you have one where you kind of have it partitioned off and it's closed and there's not as much openness and then you have this other operating system that interfaces with that and you have more uh, freedom within that operating system was there was, was there best practices around this domain have people been thinking about this type of this type of framework for for a long time or is this fairly new Oh, no, people have absolutely been thinking about it, and and this is a this is a concept that you'll find in lots of everyday devices. Um, your cell phone, as we were talking about earlier, um, actually has a very similar thing where there's a core that is related um, to primarily telephony that it has to you know by government regulation needs to be reliable. So if you need to make a an emergency call on your cell phone. That system, you know, needs to be certified to, you know, to a higher standard. Um, and that is essentially firewalled from then the application processor that, you know, will do things like run Android and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, and, and it's a very interesting wall where, you know, there are some companies who are doing things with encryption where they're trying to push things down into that lower level processor um, to, you know, to make, for instance, you know, uh, password less security, more secure. Um, but there, in cell phones, there is certainly um, this sort of uh, division. In cars, it's the same way. So um, cars also use CAN buses for for module to module communication. Um, and there's a there is a safety critical CAN bus, and there's also a CAN bus that's used by things like the infotainment system, um, and you know the and the the lighting systems and things like that. So. Uh, certainly, this is a concept um, that has been around. Um, I think one of the interesting things that makes it unique for drones is that the the inner there there has to be an interface between the two sides, and that and that interface is is fairly esoteric to you know to autonomous flight. So you know we need to make an interface where applications can you know control the position and movement of the drone in, in three dimensional space. Because the, the, a lot of times the applications are, you know, putting the drone in a spot where it's going to collect the data that it needs to collect. Uh, but the, you know, it's the the onus is on the safety critical side to make sure that those those sort of control commands um, are are still safe. And so that, I think that's the, maybe the thing that makes it unique about drones. Um, but even then, I mean, this is you, you'll find this in cars, in phones, in in commercial aircraft. Um, so the concept is is fairly broad. Mm. So what can I build with this framework, this framework that Airware presents to me that I can build my own applications with? So the, what, what we're trying to enable, um, we, we think of the, the drone as a, as a way to collect aerial data. And so the, and, and we want to, you know, we're taking care of as many of the, um, of the underlying thing, you know, parts of the problem as possible. And, and again, not only at the actual physical drone layer, but all the way up through the planning and, and data analysis that happens in the cloud. Uh, but the, most of the applications that would, uh, for instance, run on board an application computer um, that's on the drone would, would be related to, um, as I mentioned earlier, navigating the drone through space. To, to put it in a position where it's collecting the data. 
um, where many of the tasks that we do are, are inspecting things. And, and so, you know, for instance, inspecting a, a rooftop requires, you know, moving the drone around to various areas of the rooftop, making sure that you are safely avoiding any obstacles um, that are that are in that environment. It's the same thing in, uh, in when you're inspecting utility infrastructure. There are things like utility towers and power lines um, that oftentimes need to be navigated around in, a, in an intelligent way. Um, and that navigation can sometimes be pre-programmed, um, but a lot of times that navigation requires input from real-time input from a sensor that is also on the drone. For instance, uh, an array scanning lidar that you might find on a self-driving car. So one one class of applications would be uh, an application that takes data from those sensors, those real-time sensors um, that are giving information about what's around the drone. Uh, and then combining that with some type of plan um, for a thing that you might want to inspect and then issuing commands to the drone so that it can navigate itself around the objects or infrastructure to be inspected um, to collect the data that, that you want to collect. So what are the, like, how did you learn over time what things you could expose to the programmer and what, like the application developer and what things you had to restrict to uh, the the operating system that was more garden, walled gardened off? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's a... It's a combination of best practices, which there are. I mean, there are plenty of best practices around this um, in the form of industry group standards, um, obviously, you know, a ton of literature. Uh, but then also, you know, a lot in, my, in my personal experience, a lot of it um, actually came from, you know, my experience as a grad student, you know, creating, you know, building little flying robots um, and, you know, flying them in an indoor in an indoor lab setting. Um, through the, you know, sort of the course of um, getting a PhD in, in you know, autonomy and AI. Um, I, you know, slaved over, you know, cried over uh, a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of robots that, um, you know, a lot of, where I was testing high level applications. Um, you know, my, the research was mostly in autonomy and navigation and coordinated control with other vehicles. And that they would be issuing commands to these vehicles. And, you know, you start to get a sense for, you need to build a boundary around it so that the the you know the control application that you're testing can go completely haywire but the drone itself will not crash because if it crashes that means that i need to spend the next two days putting it back together in the lab uh, so a lot of the you know a lot of the experience um at least in in my in my case has come from um hands-on experience with real um you know small aerial robots in the, in a research setting hmm. um and then and then combining that with um as i said lots of the software standards um, that, you know, that you would find in commercial autopilots where, you know, there are some things um, that there, there are some threads that effectively cannot be interrupted. So you have, you know, sensor data coming in from, for instance, the accelerometer or the rate gyro. Those, those signals need to be numerically integrated um, at a certain time step so that you can integrate the acceleration to get an estimate of velocity. You'll then integrate velocity to get an estimate of position. Uh, those need to happen on a certain time step. If that, if that delta T um, is different every time, the integration will be incorrect. Um, and the drone's estimate of where it is in the world will be incorrect, uh, which is a problem. And, and the same thing on the control side. So for a typical multi-rotor drone, this is the drone with, you know, really simple, just four, four motors, four propellers, um, similar to, you know, a, a DJI Phantom or lots of the consumer drones. That, that system from a, from a dynamic 
perspective is completely unstable. So if one of those propellers is spinning just a little tiny bit faster than the other three, the vehicle will very quickly flip over. Um, and so what that means is that the control, the the rate at which I need to send different signals to those motors to keep the drone stabilized has to happen extremely quickly. And in and, and, and often cases, that's thousands of times per second. Um, and so, you know, there there are certainly some things where just to keep the drone stable and, and flying safely, you know that the timing of certain things cannot be interrupted. Uh, and so so you kind of combine, you know, some some intuition and, and sort of hands-on experience with some of the software standards and then some of just the very practical uh, issues of maintaining the control of the system. And it, it starts to sort of paint a picture of what needs to be protected um, and, you know, and, and what can what can be sort of abstracted um, slightly further away from that safety critical core. Mm. So uh, let's talk some about this, this integration process, because you have this uh, core flight system that can work with a variety of pieces of hardware, well, I should say drones. Um, what, what de- what determines whether or not a drone, a specific drone, is compatible with Airware's platform? Yeah, generally, um, you know, it, it depends on where the the integration would take place. Um, to, you know, most of the time, um, the you know the the thing that you're integrating will be something on the application side. So it will be a sensor. Um, it w- it might be an algorithm that runs on board. It might be some machine learning that's you know that's doing. Um, up, you know, damage detection on images that are coming in from the camera. And so a lot of times it's software. Um, and, you know, and, and really that's that's just software that runs on the application computer. Um, in terms of hardware, there, you know, it's typically less common for um, to, to integrate safety critical hardware into into a drone system. Typically, you know, you want that hardware to be extremely well tested. Um, and so mi- mixing and matching the safety critical hardware is um, is not something that's too common, just because of the the amount of testing and validation that that has to go through um, to to give the you know these sort of um, guarantees of of system performance. Mm. Um, and so, and that's something. So that's that's less common. And I'd say most of what we've seen in terms of integrating third party applications or third party hardware typically comes in on the application side, um, where you know where the it's the same the same constraints as, as you know. Integrating something with a you know a Linux computer, you know they're either plugging it in over USB or Ethernet, um, wrapping some you know wrapping some middleware around the driver so that it's accessible by from the other applications that are running. Right. So, uh, what about do you have to integrate with like sensors that because there's a variety of you know hardware sensors that are on the market. Uh, are are the protocols for these different sensors standardized, or do you not need to worry about that? Well, they're, they're all different, and that's um, one of the reasons why a standardized middleware layer is so important. So for, you know, for uh, between a Sony camera um, and a Nikon camera, the, the USB protocols for those cameras to control them programmatically are completely different. Um, oftentimes, you know, they're, they're almost always proprietary. They change very frequently. Um, and so to, you know, to maintain sort of a, a universal driver for all, for every possible camera that you might plug in uh, over USB to an application computer would be impossible. And so instead, the, the paradigm is to think about the, the services and the data that the camera might offer. So if I'm a camera, um, there will typically, you know, there will be a service that's called Take Picture. 
Um, there might be a service that, you know, lists all of the pictures that are stored on the memory card. There might be a service that configures the aperture or the shutter speed of the camera. And so what you can do is come up with a list of, of the actual things that that camera exposes to the world in terms of interactive services, but also data that it might be publishing. Um, and you and, and you create middleware topics around those things. So you, you come up with remote procedure calls for any of these services. You come up with data topics for, you know, any of the data that's coming in or out. And, and then on the inside of that middleware is where you do all of the things that are specific to that camera. So that if I plug a Nikon camera in or a Sony camera in, there is a driver that's sitting underneath of this middleware module. But to the rest of the to the rest of the domain, they know all of the other apps that are on there, they just know that it's a camera and they know that if they call the take picture service, it's going to take a picture. Um, and so that's that's sort of the that's the importance of middleware when you're integrating lots of different pieces of hardware and software. The same thing goes for software, by the way. There might be services, you know, that take um, take a photo and you know and find and do you know Harris detection on all of the corners. Um, that might be a standardized thing that you want your software to be able to provide to other applications that are running on that same network. Um, so so that's that's where middleware comes in, and it's to to sort of standardize the interfaces to these devices and pieces of software because the the actually underlying interfaces are um, are just horrifically different in these <laughs> cases. Got it. So the so the middleware you use to impose a set of standards on the the inputs that uh, are viable for the platform itself, and this is a pattern that can apply to drones. It can apply to other things that have wide varieties of inputs. Yeah, that's that's correct, and and that's you know uh, I mentioned earlier um, a system called a robot operating system, and and this is a framework that. Um, that I, I mean, I would say has has kind of revolutionized the way that real world robotics research is done, uh, because once the once the academic community all started using robot operating system, and and then publishing their you know their modules and their software to um, a, a common repository, then you know as a researcher, if I wanted to integrate um, you know a six scanning lidar. Um, and then also a SLAM algorithm. I don't actually need to write all the piping for those things. I just download the ROS drivers for those and run them. And now magically the LiDAR talks to the SLAM algorithm. Uh, and so that sort of happened, you know, that that sort of, that actually came out of Willow Garage, um, which was a robotics company here in the Bay Area. But um, think that that's a, you know, a good example of a middleware framework where it's kind of unifying things so that people don't have to spend as much time rewriting code um, and can, you know, get to the end goal much faster. Mm. Let's move up the stack a little bit. Um, well, maybe not move up the stack, but let's talk about computer vision. Is the state of computer vision a bottleneck to any of the potential applications of commercial drones? Um, well, it, it depends on how you define bottleneck. Um, I would say that there there has been remarkable progress in computer vision um, for actually a lot of low-level things that are very applicable to drones. Um, so you've, uh, you may have heard of, um, uh, Google has a project called, uh, project tango, I believe it's called, uh, where, where they're taking, you know, real time, uh, video feeds and, and oftentimes stereo or structured light. Um, and they're fusing that with inertial sensors, uh, to essentially do a visual inertial navigation and very precise navigation, um, of the phone through space. Um, so typically a drone would do this with GPS, but in situations where GPS might be obstructed or unavailable, 
um, there is actually enough information um, from a video camera and inertial sensors to, you know, to reconstruct very accurately the position, velocity, and attitude um, of, you know, in the case of Project Tango, a phone. Um, and, and that, you know, and that relies on a lot of computer vision um, in terms of detecting features, um, doing odometry from frame to frame on a video. Um, and, and not only does it require, you know, computer vision algorithms, it also requires optimized algorithms that will be able to run quickly enough so that you can do this 50 times a second. Um, so, so I'd say for many things, computer vision um, has actually, you know, enabled uh, not only drones, but robotics in general uh, to do interesting things in navigation um, in obstacle detection and, and things like that. Yeah. And one uh, application of uh, obstacle detection, I guess, would be coordinating different drones to avoid each other. Is that something you have to think about at Airware? Um, so not not yet. And I'd say the um, there there's a big set of regulations that the FAA has just put out um, that they're that are actually going live very soon um, called the Part 107. And and what that you know those those regulations. Uh, basically only permit operators to fly one drone at a time. Um, and, you know, you're, you're flying drones. Uh, you can't fly them over people um, or heavily populated areas. Um, you have to fly them below a certain ceiling. So the, the regulations are essentially limiting the, you know, the drone operations uh, to, to not really yet necessitate um, drone-to-drone collision avoidance. Um, I, I think down the road, um, you know, once once drones begin to pro, uh, proliferate, once they're sort of truly integrated into the national airspace system, um, the sense and avoid systems will become much more important. Uh, but I, you know, but I'd say for many many commercial applications and, and applications that we're working on at Airware, um, that that type of technology is not yet necessary. Um, and and so you know, it's maybe maybe down the road. It's an active area of research, certainly um, in the academic community. So, so lots of interesting things happening, but um, not not really necessary for commercial operations uh, right now. Right, and I think the you know it's kind of like the the kicking the can down the road sort of thing. It's the same thing they're doing with the self driving trucks. I think they're talking about just giving them their own highways where they can be self driving on, and then you know when uh, when they would get to a an area that. Uh, has roads with other people on them, then a driver has to get in in the truck. So they, they think of these ways of sandboxing the autonomous capabilities. It sounds like they're kind of doing something similar with uh, drones, or at least analogous. Yeah, and and I think you know that's a as a as a very practical technologist. I think that that is a a smart way to go about um, gaining confidence in these autonomous systems. So you know, so instead of you know, instead of just releasing, you know, your sort of self-driving car out into the out into the wild, um, and and the same thing with drones, instead of just sort of releasing them into the into the national airspace with all the manned aircraft, um, it, it makes sense to start in a sandbox. Um, you are proving out the technology, so the you know the drones and 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 the self-driving cars are you know in some cases driving autonomously, but you know maybe you're cheating for a few of the you know small aspects yeah maybe it's a maybe it's sort of a closed course for autonomous trucks um for drones you know maybe it's a a very small sort of um operational area that's closely monitored by an operator so so i think those are necessary um incremental steps and you know um i think will not only um 
enable and not only build confidence in the system, but also start to um, gain public acceptance with a lot of this technology where we can say, yeah, well, we've been operating these things and in a sandbox, sure, but we've been doing that for 10 years and, and we have all of this data that points to how safe they are. Um, it's much easier to then transition um, into the wider world if if that's the the path that you want to mm-hmm. take. Yeah. So speaking of computer vision, so there was this YouTube video I saw where you were talking about using change detection algorithms on images from drones. And I can imagine this being important if you have a drone that's flying over your crops or, you know, flying over your cell towers or flying over, um, I don't know, areas with certain types of foliage growing where you would want to be able to diff, uh, you know, new images against old images. Um, What is the state of image processing when it comes to this change detection and how i mean how well defined is this area do you have to roll anything on your own or can you mostly take things off the shelf for change detection yeah you know and it it really does depend on the type of data and the type of application um i I would say that one of the one of the reasons why this time series analysis has become much more interesting um, with aerial data is because drones can collect data much more frequently um, and, and with, with less hassle than, you know, than data may have been collected either manually by someone on the ground or from a manned aircraft. Um, so, so you know, drones make this data um, available on a much more frequent basis. Um, and sometimes change detection really just means, you know, a slider between, you know, this is the photo before and this is the photo after. You know, for, for some applications, that may be enough. Um, you know, for other applications, you know, you, you may want to be doing, you know, some type of analysis. You, you'd mentioned sort of vegetation um, and vegetation encroachment is a big deal for um, a lot of the utility companies. And so, you know, that, that change detection might look, you know, might be sort of more volumetric in nature um, where you're matching two, uh, two data sets together and, and looking at how the volume of certain areas of that of those data sets have changed. Um, volumetrics are also really big in the sort of mining and quarrying industry um, where, you know, they're, the, the job is, is literally to move volumes of rock um, from, you know, from a quarry or a mine um, and make them available for construction. And for that, um, you know, change detection does often involve looking at 3D models that the, that the drone is able to produce um, of a site over, over either, you know, two, two sort of time instances or even more than that. And seeing how the volumes of, you know, things like uh, stockpiles or quarry faces have changed over time. Um, so it's really, you know, there, I don't think that, you know, change detection itself is such a broad term. Um, there, you know, there are certainly, you know, th- there are certainly some more advanced things um, detecting subtle damage or um, corrosion, for instance, on uh, metal uh, that, you know, is very common in lots of uh, civil infrastructure um, some of those, you know, might involve, um, you know, some things like deep learning or uh, more sophisticated uh, image recognition. Um, but I think lots of times change detection is is really, you know, is maybe more straightforward. And I think the thing that has limited the application of it has been the the data source. And that's one of the things that drones are starting to change. You mentioned the quarry analysis thing, and I, I had not known about this job until I watched some of the YouTube videos about airware. This is a job where you have like a mine or a quarry and you have the, you have a big pile of whatever is being uh, 
taken out of the quarry and there is a job uh, that some worker is employed to do where the worker walks around and looks at the pile of stuff that has accumulated out of the mine and I guess documents it. Uh, and this is one of these jobs where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad this is going to be automated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's lots of jobs like that. And, and it, it, you know, this is a, an example of where drones have the potential to, to really revolutionize the way things are done. So, you know, previously, you know, to to do sort of a full volumetric analysis of a minor quarry, you know, oftentimes, you know, you have people who are um, with, you know, ground-based surveying devices um, that are walking around. Um, it takes a long time. A lot of times it's unsafe uh, because they're, you know, these people physically have to put themselves in, um, you know, in places where they can take measurements. Uh, with, a, you know, from the aerial perspective and especially um, sort of the uh, low-altitude perspective of a drone, um, you know, you can capture a lot of data that can be turned into you know, much more accurate volumetric and 3D models of that same place. And, you know, it, it takes much less time. It's obviously a lot safer. Um, and as I said, if you can do it more frequently, um, you know, you can, that, that data is much more powerful um, when you do the time series analysis. And then you can also, you know, it's also more accessible. So one of the other, um, you know, big parts of what we're delivering at Airware is a cloud platform that will not only, you know, run the data through an analytics pipeline, but also present it to, um, to you know, to users in a, in an in a, in a way that is more accessible than, you know, for instance, a CAD file that that may have been generated from one of those surveys um, that would then create an information bottleneck. So so not only, you know, collecting the data more quickly, more frequently, um, but also making it more accessible is, I think, something that not only in mines and quarries, but for for many, many industries will um, will sort of fundamentally change the way that um, that day to day operations work. So we've done all these shows about various software companies, and we often discuss their continuous deployment strategies, continuous delivery. That is not, I imagine, the case <laughs> with drone software. You can't just like push a change to drone software to the pipeline and have some easy automated test. It's more there is manual testing i am i'm guessing and uh by manual we really mean manual testing <laughs> yeah. what is the cycle for testing updates to these drones yeah yeah certainly i mean it's it is not an industry where you can you know move fast and break things um, especially with the with the flight critical software um, but that, you know, believe it or not, there, there are lots and lots of automated tests that we do before, um, before that software is ever flown on an actual drone. And, and the flying is, is almost the last step and it's more of a verification step than an actual test step. So, so, to, you know, to kind of take you through it, um, you know, there, there's lots of different levels of testing. Um, there are obviously unit tests that, you know, are testing small portions of code, um, and you, you sort of step up the level of integration with that with that code and, and the other modules that it interacts with. So um, there are, you know, level one tests that may be, you know, sort of in integrations from thread to thread. Um, there, you know, as, as you go up, you start to test, you know, maybe then two pieces of hardware that are talking to each other. Um, so at Airware, if, you know, if, if you're ever here, it's really fun because there's lots and lots of hardware sort of all out everywhere. And, and a lot of that hardware are these automated test rigs. Where we can essentially flash, um, you know, uh, candidate releases, um, or you know, or even just intermediate development branches to an actual hardware system that is representative of what is in the drone itself, and then run a series of tests um, on that hardware. Um, one of the core concepts in testing, um, 
lots of different sort of robotic systems, but um, in particular, autopilot systems is something called a hardware in the loop simulator. And and what this does is you, you run your actual code um, on on the on the actual target hardware on the autopilot, um, but and and you you know you'll send commands that you know would go to uh, tip it real motors on, on a real drone, but instead you take those commands and you you feed them into a simulation that's running alongside the test, um, and it's a, it's actually a physics simulation. That physics simulation then generates the data that your sensors would report if this was the real world and not a simulation. And that data gets sent seamlessly back into the hardware system. So, so your software actually does not know the difference. It doesn't know that it's not flying a real aircraft, um, but it is, a, it is in fact a software simulation. So this is called a hardware in the loop simulator. Um, and this is one of the key components um, that we can do very extensive testing and automated testing um, using a, a hill sim. Uh, and, and then and we have a, you know, a very high degree of confidence that, you know, the, the software is going to perform as, as intended by the time we get it out to the field. Um, so, yeah, the, the hands-on testing is kind of the last step, um, but it certainly is an important step. So is the software development lifecycle a little slower, a little more constrained than somebody building a web app, for example? Uh, on on the certainly um, you know on the drone software side, it, it is a little bit slower. Um, the you know the the testing necessarily needs to be more comprehensive. Um, the actual development needs to be more disciplined. Um, you know, in in terms of making sure that interfaces aren't broken, making sure there aren't unintended consequences. Um, you know, to the to the commit that you're about to push, hmm. um, and and yeah, the, and the you know the I think the thing that may slow it down is all these levels of testing that sort of need to happen um, in uh, in sequence uh, in order to build confidence. I'd say though, on the you know for the other half of what Airware does, which is all in the cloud, um, you know, we have a very you know very modern you know agile continuous release, continuous delivery um, development philosophy where you know we are able to to move a little bit faster. Right. So this is the whole data engineering side that we haven't really had a chance to discuss. Um, all this data that's being gathered by the drones, you have a platform for dealing with it, processing it, um, a user platform. Um, and, you know, we we could discuss that, but we're, so we're running low on time. I want to just discuss a few things that are more specific to drones. What's sure. the state of drone regulation in the United States and how does that affect how you write software? Yeah, so so right now, um, and I, I mentioned earlier, but the the FAA um, is getting ready to release um, what is sometimes termed the small unmanned aircraft rule. Um, more technically, this is called Part One Hundred Seven, um, and that is that is is going to enable um, a single operator uh, to operate a drone that is below in a certain size class, so less than fifty five pounds. Um, operate within line of sight, so you need to be able to see the drone at all times. Um, operate it, you know, not over people um, and and not over non-participating uh, structures, um, and you know, and, and some common sense things like it needs to be operated during daylight hours only. Um, so, so that and you know, that's the regulation that is, I think, literally the next few days um, getting ready to be rolled out. And so, and and which is really neat because um, that also comes along with a certification program for drone operators, which there has never been before um, in a in a scalable way. So, starting very soon, um, you will be able to study and take a test to become a Part One Hundred Seven drone operator, which is really exciting. Um, so that and that you know, so 
in the as I described those, you you can get the sense for what some of the limitations are. Um, so you know, for many applications, you may want to fly beyond visual line of sight. Um, if you want to, for instance, inspect a pipeline, um, you may want to operate larger aircraft. Um, you you may may want to operate with you know uh, multiple operators that you may be passing the drone off to. Maybe multiple drones that are operating at the same time. Um, so so what the F, you know and the FAA um, has what they've done is is very smart in the sense that you know they're they're starting with uh, sort of limited um, operations and you know and feeling that out there there are also waivers so if you do want to do beyond visual line of sight I can you can work with the FAA provide them data um, to say that your system is safe and reliable um, and your operations and they can issue you a waiver to say okay you're you're now allowed to operate beyond line of sight but with you know under these certain restrictions. Um, so that that's kind of the current state um, of drone operations, and and this is this is kind of the way it has been in Europe and, and Canada, for instance, for a few years now. Mm. Do you have any knowledge to how your software architecture for your drones compares to that of Amazon and Google? Like, I'm very curious how the the drone software architecture ecosystem is developing, how open it is, how much discussion there is. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's a little bit interesting because um, for a lot of the the sort of flight software, um, you know, a lot of that heritage comes from autopilots that you would find in manned aircraft. And and for those, there's a very stringent set of software development guidelines. Um, one example, uh, there's a standard called DO178 that has five different levels of safety um, where, you know, DO, you know, an autopilot that, you know, controls the 737 aircraft, um, you know, that that you fly across the country, you know, might be DO-178 level B, um, which, you know, which is very stringent. Now, for for drones, um, the, the the risk profile is much different. Um, and so the, you know, and, and again, the regulations can impose these restrictions that that make the, you know, the risk of um, damage to persons or property much less. And so, and, and accordingly, the software standards are, you know, are sort of less stringent. Um, so, so you know, there is a heritage that comes from sort of unmanned, um, you know, sorry, uh, from manned aviation um, and autopilots. But at the same time, you know, there, you know, there, there's, for instance, open source autopilot projects, um, you know, where where either hobbyists or you know people who are really interested in this as um, as a technical area can kind of collaborate as a community and. Um, and make iterative software that for, you know, for what we're doing here, you know, there, we need to strike a balance between um, agility of development, but also, uh, you know, of safety. Um, so it, it is interesting. And there, but there certainly are open source autopilot projects um, that, that, you know, fairly large communities have sort of piled onto and, and developed and tested. Okay. But it sounds like the, there's not much openness to the Amazon or Google uh, corporate programs. They're more, those are more, uh, insular. I think, you know, I think what ultimately happens is that the, you know, for the, the lower level that you go on the software, the sort of more esoteric that software becomes to, you know, the specific hardware configuration or the specific application, um, or the specific vehicle even that, you know, that the, that, that you're sort of putting that hardware on. So, I, I think that inevitably happens, um, and so it, it is a little bit more difficult the lower you go to, you know, to kind of share um, things. But there, there, are, you know, there are certainly best practices and and you know lots of lots of common knowledge in terms of how these systems should be designed, at least. Yeah. Okay. Well, Buddy Machini, thanks for coming on the show um, and taking the time. 
This has been a great conversation. I'm glad we can do some coverage on drones on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, I, I, I really love the podcast. I enjoyed the conversation on AI. Oh. Um, and yeah, which, which was fantastic. And I think, you know, uh, and, you know, definitely applicable to drones. Um, so, yeah, thanks for having me. I really cool. enjoyed it. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono.